0: If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4. In the words of our friend and good brother, Kenneth Vaughn, we are rounding third and heading home. Lord willing, we will finish Philippians next week. This week we are in verses 2 through 9, where Paul gives us a final series of commands to the Philippians and to us. In a first blush, if you've read through the text or when I hear it, you might think uh, that the commands feel disconnected or disparate, but Paul is drawing from some of the major themes in the book, namely the, the condescension of God and His awaited glorious return, and these give shape to our earthly existence, even as we await the Lord's return and the fullness of our heavenly citizenship. So what we'll see this morning, and this is our big idea, that despite our circumstances, the Lord calls us to unity, to trust, and to virtue. Despite our circumstances, the Lord calls us to unity, to trust, and to virtue. In verses 2 and 3, we'll see the call to unity. In 3 and 7, the call to trust. In verses 8 and 9, the call to virtue. That is to dwell on and to do what is good. So if you will, stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Philippians chapter 4, verses... 2 through 9 I urge Euodia and I urge Syntyche to agree in the Lord Yes I also ask you true partner to help these women who have contended for the gospel at my side along with Clement and the rest of the co-workers whose names are in the book of life Rejoice in the Lord always I say it again rejoice Let your graciousness be known to everyone The Lord is near Don't worry about anything but in everything Through prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any moral excellence, and if there is anything praiseworthy, dwell on these things. Do what you have learned and received and heard from me and seen in me, and the God of peace will be with you. You can be seated. First, our text calls for unity despite our circumstances, those circumstances being our differences, our disunity even, perhaps even our disdain for one another at times. The theme of unity has been pronounced throughout the book. The command toward Christian harmony is made most explicit at the end of chapter 1, And in the beginning of chapter 2, as the text commands us to stand firm and contend together for the gospel, we saw that Christian harmony is necessary for both our perseverance in and our witness to the gospel. Then Paul, in the beginning of chapter 2, employing slave talk, commands us to consider other Christians as more important than ourselves, considering their interests even before our own. Like our status in the world doesn't help us in here. We are on equal footing before the cross as sinners and before the Father as sons and daughters in Christ. Well, here in chapter 4, Paul gets really specific. He addresses the actual problem in the church. I urge you, Odia, and I urge Syntyche to agree in the Lord. He's not beating around the bush. He's not playing favorites. And apparently he's not afraid to embarrass you in public. He publicly urges both of them to agree. Who are these women? We see them here in this book, based on what Paul says in verse 3, right, that they've contended for the gospel at his side, that they're his co-workers. The fact that Paul spent much of his letter addressing unity broadly, and now specifically calling them out by name even in the gathering, it means that these women were probably very prominent in the church. They might have held an office like deaconess, I think at minimum they had influence. It might have been um, because of their godliness, their track record of ministry, even with Paul. They might be founding members of PBC. The other members have seen in Euodia and Syntyche two godly women living according to the example that they had in Paul. It also means because of their influence, whether they hold an office or not, that their disagreement, their disunity, if it continues to grow and fester, it has the opportunity to divide and to split the church which of course is an affront to the tri-unity of god and our gospel message which is a gospel of peace now what's the nature of their disagreement we don't know and i think that's part of the point for us not to trivialize whatever the issue is but it doesn't necessarily matter whether one has wronged the other or whether they find themselves holding two ideologies that seem so different Then it makes them want to be hostile toward each other like Republican and Democrat in an election season. Regardless of their disagreement, they must, verse 2, agree in the Lord. Now what does it mean to agree? Does that mean if you and I are divided over a political issue, we need to agree on the issue? Like if you, you and I have to come to the point where we are voting on the same person and if not, we have to find a different church... No, I think if we, as we've seen time and time again, this unity transcends our disunity. It's an agreement, not regarding the issue, but an agreement in the Lord. This doesn't come out in English, but Paul is not actually commanding them to agree. He is commanding them to share the same attitude or mindset or thinking in the Lord that will lead to an agreement or unity. He's getting at, again, the humility that leads to harmony that we saw in chapter 2. He's urging them the same thing. It's the same command or verb that he gave in chapter 2, verse 5. Adopt the same mindset of that of Christ Jesus. That's because what's necessary for harmony is not a shared understanding of a tertiary issue. What's necessary for harmony is the humility modeled by and given to us in Christ Jesus that God would so consider the interests of others that He would condescend so low, becoming a man, which is to say, for God, He became a slave. And humbling Himself further, He, God, the Son, died a criminal's death in our stead for our sins, that we might go free. Our inability to agree in the Lord, our choice to hold our differences over each other's heads as though they they are our enemies, Screams of ingratitude beside the cross of Christ. Their real, quote-unquote, differences were dealt with. The chasm between a holy God and sinful men, between judge and criminal. In Christ, we see God himself dealing not just with our disagreement, but our enmity toward him. Not just a differing ideology, but our idolatry. His chastisement has brought us peace, Isaiah writes. So we are to agree in the Lord. We're to share that very mindset, the humility that would plunge God to unimaginable depths to deal with our sin and to give us peace. We can agree in the Lord because we've been united to a common Lord and model. And we also have a common salvation and mission. You might have caught this in verse three. Yes, I also urge you, true partner, to help these women who have contended for the gospel at my side, along with Clement and the rest of the coworkers whose names are in the book of life. There is a reminder to these sisters of what they have in common, a shared history and future, a common salvation and mission. Like soldiers in a trench, Euodia, Paul, Syntyche, Clement, others, they've contended for the gospel together. No doubt they have supported Paul financially. No doubt they spent years praying for him together as they heard about his ministry and suffering. They themselves likely endured persecution together as they lived for and shared the gospel in Philippi. They are Paul's co-workers in a cosmic battle. In its time, they lift their gaze from the temporal to the eternal. There is no time to bicker when life is war. And more importantly, what Paul gets at is their names, like ours, have been written in the book of life. Revelation chapter 13, verse 8 says that before the foundation of the world, our names are written in the book of life. The book of life is like a record of the elect, a census, you might say, of those whom the Father chose for the Lamb to save. And it's revealed at the end of time, it's like an eschatological membership directory of all the true saints throughout all time. Revelation 20, verse 12, John, speaking of the New Jerusalem, writes, Nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those written in the Lamb's book of life. To have your name written in the book of life is to say that you've been chosen by the Father, you've been saved by the Son, you've been sealed by the Spirit. Your name is written in permanent ink. The blood of the Lamb. And your future is as certain and glorious as His. So our common Lord, mission, salvation, they ought to outweigh anything that would seek to divide us. And it's not even close. Friends, don't buy into all the rhetoric and identity politics that would seek to destroy us this season. Life is too short, and eternity is too long. The stakes are too high to be be divided over things that will pass away like the dew in the morning. Our love for one another ought to be driven by God's love for us, not whether we see eye to eye on every particular issue. You should seek to concern yourself less with what name your fellow member might be writing down in November and more with the fact that their name has been written by God himself in the book of life. That ought to be our starting and ending point. MBC, what might you be tempted to divide over? Politics, race, age, culture, money, sports, is there someone in this body that you need to be reconciled to? Perhaps someone you need to forgive or repent to. How can we, NBC, help you walk in that unity? Did you notice the corporate nature of their disagreement and reconciliation? Paul calls them out publicly. (laughs) Could you imagine being one of these women? They would have received this letter. We got a new letter from Paul. You know, I love Paul, well I love him more. And uh, it's the Lord's Day. The entire letter would have been read in one sitting. And they're sitting there thinking, you know, like, yeah, Euodia should consider my interests above her own. I am more important than Syntyche. And then we get to the end of the letter, right, towards the end. I urge Euodia and I urge Syntyche to agree in the Lord. <laughs> it would have been like a bombshell in the congregation. People are holding their breath. Paul, and then Paul calls on someone in particular, his true partner in the church, to help them. Paul calls them out publicly, and he gets the church involved. Whatever their problem is, it might be personal, but it's not private. At this point, it's sowing disunity in the body. It's hurting their ability to persevere and to um, proclaim the gospel. So it might be personal. It's not private. We gave up our false sense of autonomy when the Lord saved us from ourselves to himself and into his people. Our business is God's business, and therefore the church's business. That is what our church covenant is getting at, that we are responsible for and to one another, that we need each other in this Christian race. So despite our circumstances, despite our disagreements, our differing ideologies, classes, upbringings, we are to agree in the Lord. We are to adopt the same attitude of Christ Jesus. We are to remember our common salvation and mission. So despite our circumstances, we are called to unity. And despite our circumstances, we are called to trust the Lord. Despite our circumstances, what seems like chaos around us, we are called to trust in the Lord. Verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your graciousness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. Don't worry about anything, but in everything, through prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God, and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. We are called to respond to what's going on around us and to us and in us in such a way that displays where our true hope and trust and citizenship lie. In the sovereign Lord and in his coming kingdom the text commands three things rejoicing being gracious being prayerful in the midst of circumstances that would demand a different response they're all getting at our need to trust God first rejoice in the Lord always I say it again rejoice not sometimes not when it's convenient not just when you're hashtag blessed but always yes even when you suffer when your nation persecutes you when your neighbors malign you when your body fails you when your church is divided when false theology threatens you when work is pulled out from underneath you not rejoice in your circumstances but rejoice in the lord friends your circumstances might change but the lord does not In one week, you might move from healthy to sick, from working to unemployed, from respected to hated, but God does not. He is what He has been and what He will be, gracious and good, sovereign and steadfast, caring and compassionate, loving and loyal, and He is those things for us and to us. Time and time again, Paul in the book of Philippians has expressed his joy, right? His joy for his partners in the gospel, his joy that Christ has proclaimed even as he's being maligned, his joy about his being poured out, his potential martyrdom because it knows it resounds in the Philippians worship of and joy of God. The call to joy, none of these things make sense apart from trust to God. The call to joy is not a call to be blind to the world or to be disingenuous about how we're actually doing. Like, the answer to how are you doing is not always good. (laughs) It can't be. Christians aren't immune to the pain and heartbreak and sadness of the world. We just understand there's more to the story than what meets the eye. That the bedrock of our joy lies not in what is seen, but what is unseen and unshakable. God and His very precious promises to us We can rejoice in the Lord and mourn in our circumstances because we're firmly planted in the present and the future, awaiting His return. If Pixar's inside out can grasp that we are often happy and sad at the same time, Christians above all can understand that we simultaneously experience deep joy and real pain. We rejoice in a joy that, in one sense, transcends our circumstances. It's rooted in the rock-solid character and promises of God. And in another sense, our joy doesn't transcend our circumstances, just our understanding of them. To paraphrase, paraphrase Spurgeon, we can rejoice that the waves that crush us throw us upon the rock that is Christ. And so we rejoice in the Lord, always trusting Him. We rejoice, and we let our graciousness be known to everyone. Real joy during hardship makes little sense. Maybe less sense is being gracious to those who are causing the hardship. You see, the Christian response to evil should not be evil, but grace. Such that our actual reputation is one of being a gracious people. Not a vindictive people. Not a resentful or bitter people, but a people of grace. I'm not saying we don't decry injustice not saying we don't seek reform not saying we don't stand up for our rights i'm saying our priority as christians ought always to be to extend grace motivated by god's own grace toward us we seek to respond as god responded to our sin against him as christ did to the evil against him 1 peter chapter 2 verses 22 and 23 he did not commit sin and no deceit was found in his mouth when he was insulted he did not insult in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. Jesus, the truly innocent one, as he was maligned by a human court and judge, did not retaliate. He entrusted himself to the one he knows to be the true judge, the one who will one day vindicate him and right all wrongs. Friends, How do you respond when you've been wronged? Are you quick to repay evil with evil? Perhaps in your speech behind someone's back, perhaps to their face, perhaps online? Or do you seek to extend grace? The more that we're pressed in on, the more that we're crushed, particularly for being Christians, the more opportunity that we actually have to respond in grace and to be known as a gracious people. So we rejoice in the Lord. We let our graciousness be known, and then Paul says the Lord is near. I think this is the key to understanding this text and our trust toward God. It's the nearness of the Lord. Bryce Rader asked me a question this week, and I'll say this as an aside. A great way to stimulate our thinking and our study of the text week after week is to email us questions. You know what the texts are? We email them out in the weekly email. There's a schedule online as well. You can email us text questions to help us think well. But Bryce asked me this week, is the text talking about spatial nearness or temporal nearness? Like, is this the Lord Jesus is near to us now, or he's near to return? It's a great question. I think Paul probably has both in mind the current, covenantal, comforting, relational, spatial nearness of the Lord and his impending his soon, his glorious return to save and to judge. Paul seems to be drawing off Old Testament language. Psalms 34, verse 18, The Lord is near to the brokenhearted. He saves those crushed in spirit. Psalms 145, 18, The Lord is near to all who call out to him, all who call out to him with integrity. And no doubt Paul has the imminent return of Christ in view. Zephaniah 114, The great day of the Lord is near, near and rapidly approaching. Throughout Philippians, Paul has spoken about the day of Christ. He's talked about his glorious return, the bending of every knee, the glorification of the saints, the redemption of our bodies. The nearness of the Lord, both his presence to us now and the reality of his coming, they allow us to suffer and extend grace because we know we'll be vindicated one day. That one day all rights will be, all wrongs will be made right. We're not to think about the return of Christ like like a distant event that doesn't affect us today, but will affect us if we're around when it happens. I think many of us, myself included, think about the day of the Lord like daylight savings. It's like, yeah, it's in a few weeks. If I'm still alive, it's going to impact me. (laughs) I don't know what's going to happen. I always assume I'll lose sleep. My kids will make me lose more sleep. Uh, But it, it doesn't affect me today. It will then. But our the return of the Lord brings with it what we most desperately need, which is a savior. And it's actually in the midst of chaos, our circumstances, our suffering, that we feel our desperation for, our need for a savior. It ought to make us to look more and more to a sure and soon return. And in doing so we can respond in joy, in grace, and in prayer. Paul goes on, don't worry about anything. But in everything, through prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. The Greek reads more like, Be worried about nothing, in everything pray. One commentator writes, The way to be anxious about nothing is to be prayerful about everything. I think we could add the way to be anxious about everything is to be prayerful about nothing. Prayer is the litmus test of our trust in God. Friends, we don't pray because God lacks information about us. We pray because we want more of God. Prayer is our surrendering to, resting upon, trusting in, and gaining more of God. It is how we throw ourselves upon Him in trust, how we bend our knees and our hearts to His will. It's how we learn to trust in His nearness. And notice, look at the text again, our prayers aren't aimless. We bring our petitions, our specific requests to the Father. And our prayers aren't accusatory in the midst of our hardship. We pray with thanksgiving, recognizing the fatherly goodness of God and all that He's done and is doing and will do, even as we do not understand. I think this is key for us to see God doesn't promise to answer our prayers in the way that we like. What's promised to us is peace. Verse 7, right? Don't worry and pray. Verse 7, In the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. If what circles around us in life appears like chaos, what God offers us internally is peace. A type of wholeness and stability in our thinking and feeling, a foretaste of final rest in Him. This is important for us to see. Peace is not the byproduct of understanding. Like, oh, this is what God is up to in my cancer. This is what God is doing in my losing work. This is what God is up to in my children's rebellion. This is what God must be up to in my infertility or in my singleness. Peace is not the byproduct of understanding. Peace is the byproduct of trust. It's the gift God gives when we collapse before Him in prayer, when we come to the end of ourselves, realizing we need more of Him. It's a peace that surpasses understanding, of course, because God is infinite. But it surpasses understanding because it has to. It's our lack of understanding that gets us in an anxious, worrisome mess to begin with. Our inability to see into the future, let alone understand how all of our circumstances will work out, leads to worry. We need something more than understanding. We need God's infinite, heart-guarding, mind-transcending peace. And that's what He offers us. Notice, it's not that God protects us from our circumstances per se. He protects us from ourselves. Like a soldier, God guards our hearts In our minds our hearts that are prone to wander our minds that are prone to spiral we can have peace not despite of trouble but in the midst of it in the 1988 classic don't worry be happy Bobby McFerrin sings don't worry be happy in every life we have some trouble but when you worry you make it double don't worry be happy The point of McFerrin's song is you can't avoid trouble in life. And rather than choosing to worry, you should choose to be happy. If you choose to worry, you now have double trouble, the problem in your anxiety. Now, he's right in a sense. Jesus picks up on this, uh, says something similar, Matthew chapter 6, verse 27. Can any of you add one moment to his lifespan by worrying? And verse 34, don't worry about tomorrow because tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Like being anxious, worrying about tomorrow, it doesn't help you at all today. But the problem with McFerrin's song is he offers no solution. He doesn't ground our happiness in anything. It's a type of blind, wishful ignorance. Carson Merkel put it well to me this week. It's like the ship is sinking. Oh well, be happy. The Christian is not striving for a type of blind. Happiness or peace as though the world around us is okay. It is the reality of our troubles that push us more deeply into the nearness of the Lord. Friends, we are not fighting, friends, we are fighting for serious joy and serious peace. One that is deep, immovable, abiding, unquenchable, and transcends our troubled circumstances because it's anchored in the unchanging goodness of the sovereign God. Yes, water is filling the ship. It is going down, but our captain is coming. If your soul is troubled by your circumstances, the solution isn't don't worry, be happy. Right? We don't need anyone to send us positive vibes. It's don't worry, pray. Trust yourself to your heavenly father because he cares for you. He is able. His son stands ready to still your heart like he stills the storms. And so though troubled waters circle circle us, we see what the world doesn't see or what they uh, refuse to recognize. And it's the nearness of the Lord that human history is coming to its appointed end and it will mean for us the fullness of joy and peace. And until then, we trust God. But I think it begs one final question, this kind of whole section about our Running this race to heaven and it's how do we as citizens of heaven relate to the world around us as we are as we're running this race are we fleeing do we seek to escape creation and culture do we hunker down until Christ returns or we die should we schedule more events at church so we can be here seven days a week we consider now our last point that despite our circumstances as citizens of heaven on earth we pursue virtue That is, we dwell on and we do what is good. We pursue virtue. We dwell on and do what is good, both in creation and in the church. Said differently, we enjoy God's gifts, God's good gifts in creation. Said differently one more time, we participate in those things in creation and especially in the church that whet our appetite for heaven. We seek to dwell on and do what is in keeping with our heavenly citizenship. Verse 8, finally, brothers and sisters, so we come to his final exhortation or concern in the letter, really. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any moral excellence, if there is anything praiseworthy, dwell on these things. I think what Paul is doing is giving us a grid for the type of things that we should dwell on, that we should set our minds to, that we should engage in, that we should enjoy in worship of God, both in creation and culture and in the world around us as we run this race. For this to make a couple of sense, I want to give a couple uh, foundational truths or pillars. First, and this might seem really obvious to you, but I'm going to say it anyways, creation is good, sin is bad, okay? Material, good, sin, bad. <laughs> Sound like Kevin Malone. Uh, sin bad, material good. Okay, being a citizen of heaven doesn't mean we want to flee from earth. It means we want to flee from sin and the curse. We want Christ to return that he might make earth heaven, that the dwelling place of God might be with man. This is what we see in Revelation chapter 21. We want God establishing his kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven, Jesus teaches us to pray. We want, along with all of creation, Romans 8, to be released from futility and bondage. The goal of the Christian life is not to leave the material world for a floaty world. Okay, so if you are thinking about eternity and you picture these half-naked floating baby angels, (laughs) you've got the wrong picture in your mind. We want a world that is free of sin and full of the glory and presence of God. The end of redemption is not when our soul leaves our body, that's what we call death, it's when our soul is reunited to our resurrected, glorified body, what we call glorification. We saw this in chapter 3, Paul speaking about the goal of the Christian life. Chapter 3, verse 10 and 11, my goal is to know him and the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, assuming that I will somehow reach the resurrection from among the dead. The reason I say this is because I think there's a caricature or a sense that you might get when you hear some Christians talk as though creation and grace are antithetical to one another. That's actually true of Roman Catholic theology. It's not true of Protestant theology. We believe that grace and sin are antithetical to one another. Jesus is not saving us from creation. Jesus is saving us creatures from the effects of sin that we might have access to God and enjoy Him and worship Him through creation. So creation is good. It is of course broken or fractured due to sin. That's our first pillar. And then the second thing for us to understand is that, because again, Paul is pointing us towards the things that we can find that are morally excellent and praiseworthy that we can dwell on. The second thing we need to understand is that anything that is good, it's good because it flows from God. Okay, there's no goodness or beauty, no wisdom or skill, no purity or morality apart from God. James chapter 1, verse 17 Says every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. Anything that is good ultimately flows to us from God for our enjoyment in its kind of properly creaturely limits. God is the creator, he's the standard and the wellspring of goodness. So, to give you an example, is even the type of things to dwell on and how goodness flows from God. J.K. Rowling's ability to write Harry Potter. Okay, any Harry Potter fans in here? Probably. The book, I think, beautifully displays the struggle between good and evil, the dark arts. It, I think, wonderfully portrays virtues like sacrifice and courage, compassion, humility, friendship, loyalty. It has a clear sense of morality, like its protagonists are not all antiheroes. And she's seeking to help us see that there's more to life than what meets the eye. She does it, of course, using magic. All of those things as broken as they are, as shadowy as they are, they don't ultimately flow from rolling, but God, they're giving us a goodness in these books that reflect the goodness of God. So back to this question, how do we, citizens of heaven, live as citizens of, on earth? If our posture is one of waiting and running and looking to the return of Christ, we should do whatever it takes to fix our eyes on the things that help us Long for heaven more. We should dwell on and think on, engage in those things that are good and pure and commendable, honorable, moral, and lovely wherever we find them. You could think of them as little Baskin Robbins spoonfuls giving us a taste of heaven. Again, our goal is not to be removed from heaven, Jesus prays in John 17, but to be protected from evil. This means we can enjoy and dwell on those things that are true and just, pure and lovely, praiseworthy, morally excellent, wherever we find them. We certainly find those things in the church, more on this in a second, but we also find them in novels and film, sports, creation, fishing, dancing, food, architecture, board games. All of creation and the good things that image bears make, Christian or not, the good things image bearers, make, image bearers make have the ability to display the goodness of God. So as broken as they are, they can give us a foretaste of what will one day be glorious, holy, and whole. They are gifts of God we can enjoy that we might worship Him. Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 3 and 4, speaking about um, false teachers, through the hypocrisy of liars whose consciences are seared, they forbid marriage and demand abstinence from foods that God created to be received with gratitude by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. So our posture toward creation and certainly culture, it's not one of wholesale rejection. It ought to be one of, ought to be one of discrimination. Meaning that with the discerning eye, we are considering what around us is actually good for us. What can I actually partake in and enjoy and worship God through? This is important. Hear me out. I'm not saying that you should watch whatever you want for as long as you want. Just because one character is loyal in that one episode of that show you wouldn't watch with your mother, let alone God, doesn't mean you should watch it. This list or grid that Paul is giving us, I think it prohibits as much as it allows. The things that we dwell on, that we participate in, they form us. They form what we love even. There's no escaping that. At the risk of being overly simplistic, if you spend all your time dwelling on trash, you're going to reek and you're going to grow to love filth. But friends, the next time you go to that site or read a book or watch a show, the next time you are deciding between a hobby or a job, We should ask ourselves, is this true? How much does this conform to what God has shown us in Scripture? Is this thing honorable or shameful? Is this thing just? Does it conform to God's revealed righteousness? Is this thing pure or defiled? Is this commendable? Like, could I commend this to everybody in my church to partake in? Is this morally excellent? Does it reflect God in that sense? Is it praiseworthy? should i dwell on this does this help me dwell on god what kind of person is this making me you could simplify it does this help me enjoy and worship god does it stir my affections for christ does this thing help me run the race before me and yet creation is not enough not enough theologians have often spoke of the two books of god so the first book is creation god speaks to us through it but it's not enough because we're finite we're fallen We need God to stoop low and to speak to us with clarity to help us dwell on and do what is good. And he does just that in his word. Verse 9 Do what you have learned and received and heard from me and seen in me, and the God of peace will be with you. Now, we certainly, again, we can see the goodness of God in creation and gain this faint taste of heaven. But it's in the church and among the church in particular that God speaks to us with clarity in His Word and by His Spirit, that He actually meets us. Here we learn and receive and hear and see, both from the pastors and the members as we teach one another to live out God's Word. It's here that heaven is actually breaking in. Because our hearts are idol factors, we are prone to take those things that are honorable or pure or just or right and to twist them. We need God to speak to us, to instruct us. We need models like we saw last week to teach us how to live out God's word. So while the world around us creates a sense of scenery, you might think of it as like running through the wilderness which is as beautiful as it is dangerous. The church is like our running group or our wilderness tour guide, showing us what paths to go down, which ones not to, which berries we should and shouldn't be eating, what animals we should and shouldn't be touching. It's here that God speaks with clarity about the things that we dwell on and do. Because we're moving from dwelling that is seeing to hearing. God speaks to us. Paul says, do what you have learned. Friends, what a shame it would be if after hearing all the Philippians read, perhaps you've been reading it week in and week out, keeping with the preaching as well, if after hearing the book preached, if after receiving week in and week after out, we did nothing with it. I would encourage you as we are nearing the end of the book to sit down with Philippians, to sit down with your notes, to ask yourself and the Lord what you might do in light of the book. How it might impact the way that you feel or think or live. Could you imagine Euodia in Syntyche making no movement toward unity after hearing Paul portray the humble condensation and crucifixion of the Son on behalf of them, after his calling them out publicly in the gathering, reminding them of their shared confession, salvation, and mission. Friends, I might not call you out by name every week, but if you're a Christian, the Spirit of God does. He calls us to worship in the gathering, to sing, to pray, to hear, to repent, to believe, to dwell on the goodness of God, and to do what we've heard. What a shame it would be, again taking the example of unity, of come November we look no different than the world, that we've done nothing with what we've learned and received and heard and seen. Now the goal isn't doing for the sake of doing, it's dwelling on the goodness of God and walking in the goodness of the Lord that we might gain more of God. I'm not sure if you caught that sweet promise at the end of verse 9, I'll read it again. Do what you have learned and received and heard from me and seen in me, and the God of peace will be with you. In verses 2 and 3 we saw that in Euodia and Syntyche we have peace with one another. In verses 6 and 7, we saw that we can have the peace of God in the midst of our circumstances. Here we see that what we actually get when we dwell on and do and walk in goodness is God himself, the God of peace. That's not to say we merit our relationship with God, but like any relationship, intimacy comes through work. When we dwell on those things that remind us of God, when we walk in joyful, worshipful obedience in response to God's word, what we get is God. Friends, the goal of the gospel is not the benefits of Christ. It's gaining Christ himself, the true and honorable and just and pure and lovely one, the morally excellent and praiseworthy one, the one worth dwelling on not just for an afternoon, but eternity. We get not what we deserve, the wrath of God, but what we desperately need, the God of peace. The one robed in shalom, the one who stills the storms in our hearts, the one who will right all wrongs and heal all wounds in his kingdom eternal. Friends, we get God. That is, of course, what this Christian race is about. We live in a time that is anything but peaceful. Our nation is marked by division, by chaos, by impurity. But despite our circumstances, God calls us to and gives us the gifts of unity and joy and peace and most importantly, himself. May our own NBC look more like heaven, a kingdom of joy and love, a people of peace and goodness, a colony of heaven and a colony of Rome. If we lift our eyes to heaven and let God go to work on us, we can be such a people and such a place. Let's pray. Father, we thank you above all things that our names have been written in the book of life. Never to be removed or marked out. That we have rock solid assurance that we have been chosen by the Father. That we have been saved by the Son and sealed by your Spirit. We pray that we would fix ourselves more and more upon your sure and soon return, Lord Jesus. God, we do pray that you would come those in our body who are suffering and struggling, that you would give us peace, that you would give us joy. We pray that you would protect and safeguard our body, that we would put on love, which is um, our true bond. We pray that you would help us all to run the race well, that we would dwell and meditate only on those things that point us to you. We pray that we would help each other to receive well, to listen well, and to live out well the good news of the gospel. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.